There's a man in America that wrote all of your textbooks. The way he tells it, colonization did more good than bad. The way he tells it, slavery wasn't so bad after all. And the way he tells it, there's no such thing as a good Indian unless it's a dead Indian. But there's a problem with this man. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Welcome to the podcast that goes to war with that man. For centuries, history has been the tool of masters, oppressors, settlers, and invaders. Let's change that. My name is Noah Ramage. And my name is David Hamilton. This is Uncolonial History. You almost knocked me down, man. The word is excuse me. Ah, excuse me. I'm sorry. Not only did you knock me down, you stepped on my brand new white Air Jordans that I just bought. And that's all you can say is excuse me. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. I'll fuck you up quick two times. Two times. Who told you to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Who told you to buy a brownstone on my block in my neighborhood on my side of the street? Yo, what you want to live in a black neighborhood for anyway, man? Motherfuck gentrification. Well, as I understand it, this is a free country, man. Can live wherever. Free country? Man, oh I should fuck you up for God. saying that stupid shit alone. Yo, man, your Jordans are fucked up. Damn, man, you might as well throw them shits out. Them shits, it's broke. Natalie, 708 this morning. So for what would you camp outside a store for hours or days? A great deal on a plasma TV? How about the shoes? That's right, people lined up at stores all over the city overnight to get their hands on the new Air Jordans, perhaps their feet in the new Air Jordans. Fox 46 is John Donnelly live right now in North Harris County, his feet not in the shoes. John. Yes, no, I do not have any of those shoes myself, but uh, there's a lot of people here who have them. Uh, they've been on sale uh, all morning. Now, they went on sale around midnight last night, but not everybody started selling them. Uh, you can see the line outside Greens Point Mall right now from uh, our view from Sky Fox. Uh, it's been pretty chaotic here, uh, well, controlled chaos. We know we talked to some people who waited in line, and some people gave up. They just said it just wasn't worth it. Praise up in there. I don't have time to sit up in there. People already trying to fight and everything. It's not even worth it. The sneaker business is out of control, but actually, that's just normal. According to Forbes magazine, the international sneaker market has grown by more than 40% since 2004, earning an estimated value of $55 billion in 2016. In the United States alone, the footwear industry hit $17.2 billion in sales. These are billions with a B. In 2017, Nike alone put up over $34 billion in global revenue. To give you a sense of how much that really is, consider this. There are 95 countries with a national GDP lower than that. Nike's its own country, and I'm applying for residency. That was cute. <laughs> that's, what you, that's what you wanted to say? That's all I wanted to say. And I'm applying for residency <laughs> to that country. I mean, okay, we'll talk about maybe why you might not want to do that in a, in a, in a few minutes. <laughs> uh, and they're really just getting started, though. According to Allied Market Research, the footwear market is projected to reach $371 billion by 2020. If or when that happens, the shoe industry will be producing almost the same GDP as the Federal Republic of Nigeria, which has the 31st biggest GDP in the world. All of this is just to say that from an economic perspective, big shoe companies are taking over the world. And your closet. 
Well, my closet, and not so much yours. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Both are definitely true. Uh, so on today's episode of Uncolonial, we will walk a mile through the uncolonial history of fashionable footwear. So uh, just make sure that your shoes are comfy. And don't forget to tie up your laces. I can already tell we're going to have a lot of fun with this one. That one, you hit that one a little heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, right now you might be thinking, why an episode about shoes? Shoes have been around for at least 55,000 years, according to the internet. They're really just what we put on our feet to make walking easier, right? Wrong. Shoes have increasingly become a very important category of political fashion. Just look at what Steph Curry did this year. During the same weekend, Golden State refused to follow tradition and visit Donald Trump's White House. Curry debuted a custom pair of Obama Curry 4s, showing both his support for the former president as well as contempt for the current one. Or look at what happened in 2005. The artist Judy Wertheim designed the 2005 Brinko Cross Trainers to assist with the illegal boarding crossings from Mexico. According to The Atlantic, she distributed those Brinkos to migrants at the U.S.-Mexican border for free, but still sold them at shoe boutiques in the U.S. for $215 a pair. Pretty amazing if you ask me. But you high beast didn't know about those, huh? <laughs> That's dang. <laughs> uh, and it goes both ways, too. At the end of 2016, neo-Nazi bloggers declared New Balance to be the quote-unquote official shoes of white people. This came after one of New Balance's executives expressed his approval of some of Trump's policies. After that, New Balance desperately tried to distance themselves from Trump. Just some of their most loyal customers took to burning their shoes. And that's just the last few years. In truth, shoes have been a powerful tool of political expression for much, much longer. Good morning to you. The Olympic Games are one week old today, and yesterday, the sixth day, was the most dramatic so far. It started with the news that the Black Power disciples Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the Olympic 200 meters gold and bronze medalists, had been suspended by the United States Olympic Committee and given 48 hours to leave Mexico. I had said that if there were any demonstrations at the Olympic Games by anyone, the participants would be sent home. That demonstration, I think, aroused resentment among all who saw it. There's no place for such things. And the boys involved were promptly sent home. So take the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Many of us know the story of how Tommy Smith and his fellow teammate John Carlos both raised their fists during the U.S. National Anthem doing the Black Power Salute. It's one of the most iconic sports images of all time. After silencing crowds and shocking the globe, Smith and Carlos were ordered to immediately leave the Olympic Village. They would later be stripped of their Olympic medals, but it was too late. History had already been made. When later asked whether their famous protest was worth the consequences, here's how they responded. I can't eat that, and the kids around my block, they grew up with me, they can't eat it. And the kids that's going to grow up after them, they can't eat publicity, they can't eat gold medals, as Tommy Smith said. All we ask for is equal chance to be a human being. But we so often forget, shoes played a big role in that moment. 
Right before getting on the podium, the two runners both removed their pumas, symbolically protesting the extreme forms of poverty that black Americans endured. They stood on that podium shoeless for all those that couldn't afford their own. Long story short, in the era of the $5,000 Yeezy, shoes are becoming an increasingly important part of mainstream culture. And as Nike and Adidas vie to conquer the world, we gotta run through the uncolonial history of footwear as fast as we can. So put on your running shoes. I feel like you already did that joke. Ooh, you hit that one hard this time. Because <laughs> I really meant it. <laughs> okay, but let's get into it. Let, let's get into it. <clears throat> let's get... We're not doing that again. No. Fine. Can't, can't do it. Let's get into it. So first of all, let's just brush over tens of thousands of years of shoe history. Perhaps one of the most famous early recorded incidents of footwear can be found in the Jewish Torah, often called the Old Testament. According to the story, Moses approaches a burning bush and immediately hears the voice of God, which instructs him to remove his sandals as he is on holy ground. Whether you believe this story or not, it's powerfully impacted many religions' beliefs about footwear to this day. In Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, and even some branches of Christianity, there are important laws and customs about when one should and should not wear shoes. But time to fast forward. Uh, thank you. You know, we don't even need the sound effects. Although the ancient Greeks didn't often wear shoes, the indigenous peoples of the Americas had been wearing a wide range of moccasins and sandals for thousands of years. Now, the Romans, who eventually conquered the Greeks, didn't see things the same way. They saw footwear as a necessity to living in a civilized world. And in many ways, this also helped start another trend. Shoes became a marker of social status. In Roman society, slaves and the poor usually went barefoot. And let's not forget, there's a very understudied history of footwear in Africa. Just one example of this can be found in West Africa, where the house of people wore thigh-length boots to provide their legs protection while riding camels or horses. But obviously, that's just one example. Long story short, shoes are all over human history. But with the advent of modern colonialism, the world changed, and so did shoes. All right, let's skip a few thousand years. During the 1400s, there were still many European peasants that were barefoot, but that would soon change. Now, again, we are admittedly oversimplifying a lot here, but stick with us. Wooden soled shoes called patents soon became popular as they elevated the foot above the mud and dirt of the street at a time when there weren't many sidewalks to keep yourself clean from the dirty, unpaved roads. So the patent shoe really started out as being a functional shoe. But it quickly got out of hand. And from the patent shoe, we got the Chopin shoe, a platform shoe that elevated the elite classes far above the everyday common man. They might look, well, they don't might. They look ridiculous to us now. But in the 1500s, Chopin's shoes were a mark of royalty, wealth, and power. From there, it wasn't too far jumped into the development of high heels. During the 1500s, the Persian cavalry wore high heels for better horseback riding positions. And when these guys visited Europe, all of Europe's elite men said, wow, high heels, so cool. But slowly over time, women took over that fashion and men transitioned to having squarer, more robust heels, while women's heels became 
increasingly more thin and curvy. So around this time, various footwear related technologies were being developed, uh, making shoes more and more common. Translation, peasants in Europe slowly got their feet covered. By the 1700s, peasants could be found wearing uncomfortable wooden clogs called sabots, very simple leather shoes, and occasionally boots. By the 1800s, factories were mass producing shoes thanks to the French-born engineer Marc Brunel. Now let's jump over the pond to colonial America. Over here, Western pioneers appropriated various styles of moccasins since they were the superior footwear for long distance traveling. Meanwhile, colonists imported views about shoe fashion from Europe. One's shoes, along with the rest of their outfit, could tell you all about one's social status. For example, the wealthiest colonists could afford the new styles of fashion and footwear made in England. Other colonists did the best they could to look presentable. But there was one group of people who were purposely excluded from all of this. The builders of the nation. The slaves. When it came to clothing their legal property, slave owners across the colonies were really only interested in one thing. Saving money. While slave children up to the ages of 12 often walked around naked, for adults, slave owners imported what they called Negro cloths. These were extremely cheap, coarse, and scratchy fabrics. One cheap fabric called Osnaburg was mass-produced in a German town called Osnabrück. Plantation owners in Virginia loved to buy this cheap fabric for their field slaves, and so they imported as much of the Osnaburg fabric as they could. House slaves often received higher quality clothing, but the dress was often still recognizable as that of the slaves. The dehumanizing clothes that slaves were put in actually became a useful tool for enforcing slavery. When slave owners published announcements about their runaway slaves, they knew clothing would be a dead giveaway. Advertisements would say things like, this slave was last seen wearing the common dress of field slaves. Some ads would describe how poorly fit an outfit was, while other ads would report that their runaway slaves had no shoes at all. Being barefoot could literally be a marker of enslavement. And that brings us back to footwear. When enslaved adults did get shoes, they typically got a pair of leather, straight-lasted footwear, meaning that there was no difference between right and left shoes. Children typically didn't receive shoes. Thomas Jefferson, for example, didn't give out shoes to slaves until they reached the age of 10. Slave owners also imported wooden-soled brogans from the north. These brogans had such a strong reputation for being uncomfortable that in the 1930s, many former slaves talked about how they used to just cast them aside, preferring to go barefoot than wear a pair of brogans. And let's clear up one thing. It's not as if everyone's shoes were this uncomfortable. During the late 1700s, footwear was becoming more comfortable as newer shoes were made more flexible and less stiff, which was much better for walking. But even after slavery ended, footwear remained a problem. As many of us know, slavery was replaced by an extremely exploitative system called sharecropping, which is as close to slavery as the federal government could tolerate. Take the real life example of Tom, an Alabama boy who was 12 years old in 1932. Tom's sharecropping family was reduced to such an extreme state of poverty that in the winter months, he and his brother Peter took turns sharing the same pair of shoes as they walked to their segregated school. And that's one thing that's so crazy about this history of shoes. Three decades after Tom and Peter were walking barefoot to school, two Olympic athletes in front of the entire world removed their Puma track shoes in honor of children living in poverty. And that's just crazy to me. 
it really is and it's also crazy just to see throughout history how important shoes have been as status symbols and to be honest this story really just is getting started so stick with us like gum on a soul oh my god take me out to the ball game sung by edward meeker edison record Okay, now we have to talk about how the shoe became way more than just something we put on our feet. The year was 1904, and wouldn't you know it, people actually liked baseball back then. Put those put those shots fire soundtracks in there. Soundtrack, sound effects. Come at us, MLB. Come at us, MLB, he said. <laughs> Come at us, Major League Baseball, he said. One player in particular was really making a name for himself. His name was Honus Wagner, also known as the Flying Dutchman. Honus Wagner was a batting prodigy. His batting average was .329, which the internet tells me is very good. I, of course, wouldn't know for myself because it's a stupid sport. <laughs> yep, I said it. And as you said yourself, come at me, MLB. <laughs> yes, come at Noah Ramage, MLB. <laughs> in fact, he was the best batter in the league eight times over the course of his career. Some years, he would have a batting average close to .400, which again, I'm told, is very good. So, allegedly, he was very good at hitting the old... Is it pigskin? Yep, yep, exactly right. Now, if you're a baseball kid in 1904, then obviously you're gonna look up to this guy. You're gonna wanna be the Flying Dutchman any way you can. Now, a young woodworker from Louisville, Kentucky, named John, or Bud, Hilrick, saw this and said, hmm, what would happen if we made baseball bats and then paid Honus Wagner just to put his signature on the bats? As simple as it was, the idea was revolutionary. Demand for the Louisville Slugger bats soared. The endorsement helped boost the company's prestige, and to this day, it is still the most popular bat in baseball. It looks like that idea really knocked them out of the park. Oh, God. A real home run. I don't like what we're doing. It's bad. <laughs> it's horrible. Let's cut to some music while you get a hold of yourself. <laughs> why the story of Honus Wagner is so important. That deal he made with the Louisville Slugger is considered the first athletic endorsement in history. And it completely changed the game. People took note of what happened, and soon the Converse Rubber Shoe Company decided to try the strategy out for themselves. In 1917, they introduced their first basketball shoe and immediately began paying basketball coaches and players to serve as their brand ambassadors. This included a player named Chuck Taylor, who soon got his name put on the Chuck Taylor All-Star. And they still have his name on them. Oh, and by the way, today Converse sells over 270,000 pairs of Chuck Taylors every single day. You know, it's kind of weird to think about. Basketball players were actually wearing Converse sneakers on the court. Converse used to be the official shoe of the NBA. Wilt Chamberlain wore chucks when he famously scored 100 points against the New York Knicks. For years, Converse was king. 
All that changed in the 1970s. Converse slowly started losing in the basketball market, winning instead in the rock and roll market. Bands like the Sex Pistols and the Ramones adopted the Chuck Taylors, even though they didn't really know much about the shoe's basketball origins. The famous rebel without a cause, James Dean, wore Converse, and so ever since, Converse and the Chuck Taylors have been the official shoe brand of skaters, punks, rockers, and rebels. Just put me in all four of those categories, because I am I am all of them. All the boxes. I'm definitely skater, punk, rocker, rebel, man. That's what it takes to make on Colonial History. That, uh, find me at the skate park. Rebelling. Rebelling against, against the, the punks. The quote-unquote man. <laughs> and as these changes started happening, a racial divide slowly opened up in the sneaker world. To this day, you are far more likely to see your local white hipster and Chuck Taylors than in a pair of Jordans. I don't care where you live, that is just a universal fact backed by no statistics. The Chuck Taylor is the shoe of Elvis Presley, the Rolling Stones, Nirvana, Justin Bieber, and even LMFAO. But ever since 2003, Nike owned Converse. And we got to talk about why that is. And we also got to talk about Nike and Adidas, the two biggest giants of the industry, and how they conquered it. But first, a word from our unofficial sponsors. Ooh, you already know what's going down. Oh, hey, oh, hey, what's what you eating over there, buddy? Man, you know, just my favorite buttery biscuits from the best restaurant on the planet, Knockout Wings. Wow, wow, wow. Are, are you being paid to say that? Do we, do we finally have some, some sort of a sponsorship of some kind? Absolutely not. In fact, I have zero affiliation with the owners of Knockout Wings whatsoever. I'm just saying all this out of pure admiration for the best biscuits the world has ever seen. Oh, for 50 cents. Did you, did you say 50 cents? I said 50 cents. 52 quarters. That's 50 Lincolns. Wow, that's very relevant for anyone that lives in the Nashville area. Yeah. And and, and how are the wings? Oh, yeah, they, they knock out. Mm, this is a great commercial. It should be knockout biscuits. If wow, knockout biscuits. <laughs> and, the, and that's their whole... We sell wings, too. That's their only commodity <laughs> yeah. is, the, is the 50 cent biscuits. <laughs> really, though? What a business model. All right. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, Thanks for cluing me in. Now you know. Knockout Wings is the place to go. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. The year is 1918. Germany has just lost World War I, and a man named Adolf Dassler comes home looking for a way to make money. So he starts making shoes in his mother's laundry room. His older brother Rudolf gets in on the business and soon they become owners of the Dassler Brothers Shoe Factory. For years they were a small operation, but in 1936 everything changed. The Summer Olympics came to Nazi Germany. It was one of the most controversial sporting events in the history of sports. The whole world was watching and Hitler was determined to showcase German supremacy. Meanwhile, a black athlete named Jesse Owens was shattering world records. While he qualified for the 1936 Olympics, he suddenly became the biggest threat to Hitler's Olympic vision. But while Hitler was scared of Jesse Owens, the Dassler brothers were excited about what the rising star could do for their brand. 
Dassler convinced Owens to wear their spikes for the games, and after he won four gold medals, Dassler's shoes were skyrocketed into success. So Hitler might have been humiliated by Germany's defeat to a black man, but it only added salt to the wound that he won in German-made spikes. Thanks to this moment, Dasslers were selling 200,000 pairs of shoes every year before World War II. During these years, Dassler was leaving its first big footprint on the industry. It's important to remember that the Dassler brothers weren't doing this because they were progressive or forward-thinking. They did it to make money. In fact, the Dassler brothers were actually registered members of the Nazi party, when only about 9% of the population were actually card-carrying Nazis. To give you a sense of how bad that is, they stuck by the Nazi party even after the infamous Nuremberg laws were passed, which essentially tried to remove all the rights of Jewish and Roma communities. Intermarriage was forbidden, and Jews had their citizenship revoked. The Dassler brothers even finished their letters with a nice little Hill Hitler salutation. It's like I always like to say, if you're gonna be a Nazi, never put it in writing. When do you say that? All, always. <laughs> Very true. But the Dassler brand probably would have kept growing, but history had other plans for them. The King returns to London as the drama of power politics reaches its climax in August. Hitler and Stalin sign their pact. Nazi threats rise to a scream. Peace hangs in the balance. The children are evacuated from the fear of war that may be fought over our own city streets. That danger remains, and every mother who loves her children should leave them in the peace of the country. Through all the final struggle for peace, Britain's ambassador, Sir Neville Henderson, was the man who kept calm and firm in the face of Hitler's raving. He flies back to Germany with Britain's last word. We urge talking it over, but not under the threat of armed force. Poland awaits the onslaught. This time the story of Austria and Czechoslovakia will not be repeated. This time force will be met by force, and Britain and France will stand by their ally. At dawn on September the 1st, the German war machine steamrollers into Poland. The German Air Force begins its systematic bombing of undefended cities and towns of helpless women and children. Poland's agony has come. Polish warships escape from the Baltic and join the Royal Navy. And Poland's new Prime Minister, General Sikorsky, comes to greet his men who are joining the fight for freedom. Britain and France sweep the skies over the battlefields too. In one day, Allied airmen bring down 12 German machines. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Field Marshal Goering. And as the year draws to its close, the king goes to the front. Anxious days may yet be to come, but until brute force is laid low, until a new and more peaceful world is born, we fight on for king, for empire, and for freedom. During World War II, one of the Dassler factories was used to make anti-tank weapons for the Nazis. But after it was spared from destruction, occupying American forces started buying shoes from Dassler in large numbers. Why? Because everyone wanted to buy the shoes that Owens had raced in almost 10 years earlier. It was starting to look like Dassler was unstoppable. Or undefeatable. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It was starting to look like Dassler was unstoppable until 1947 when the Dossler brothers had a schism and the relationship completely broke down. 
The company split in two. So Adolf renamed his part of the company to Adidas. 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 His brother Rudolph renamed his part of the company to Puma. The two companies became bitter rivals, but both of them continued their quest to dominate the shoe market. And wouldn't you know it, they're still around today, but we're not there yet. By 1965, Adidas, or Adidas, the reigning king of Europe, finally reached American stores. That's right, stores, not shores. See, American shores, stores, mm. shores. All right. Five years later, the company had struck gold twice, introducing both the pro model and the superstar. From that point on, it was over. Americans had fallen in love, and Adidas was their shiny glass slipper. Okay, first of all, big shout out to anyone who's made it this far. Welcome. You've now reached the part of the show where the history is going to start to sound a little funky. Fact and fiction are about to get a little blurry, so make sure you're listening. Remember how we said the Dassler brothers were both Nazis? Well, guess what? Somehow, 20 or 30 years later, Adidas was slowly developing a loose association with black empowerment. <laughs> Some way, somehow. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Adidas was the brand Jesse Owens wore when he showed up Hitler. In 1965, Bill Cosby made history with the lead role in the integrated TV show called I Spy, and his character on the show loved to wear Adidas. Eddie Murphy wore them in his movie Beverly Hills Cop. When Muhammad Ali and Joe Fraser had their famous fight, both of them were wearing Adidas. Plus, when basketball legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar put the Adidas superstars on, it was over. Adidas had carved out a special place in marginalized communities. After hip-hop's birth in New York during the 1970s, black and Latino breakdancers became known to rock the Adidas superstars. Adidas was riding a wave of youth and street culture that was turning out millions for them. And you better believe they loved being on top. Fast forwarding again here, it's the 1980s. Run DMC is one of the biggest rap groups in the country, and they also just happen to love Adidas. They wear their Adidas sneakers with no shoelaces, fashion that came out of America's prisons where shoelaces are banned. The association between hip hop and Adidas could have been a bad look. All of a sudden, people like Dr. Gerald Dees started asking black youth to stop wearing felon sneakers. Although athletes had loved Adidas for decades, some Americans began criminalizing the brand. But even if that was the case, Adidas was by no means hurting. In 1986, Run DMC released the song My Adidas, firing back at those who criticized their so-called felon sneakers, and at the same time, giving Adidas a huge sales boost. At concerts, they'd tell all their fans to raise their Adidas sneakers in the air, and thousands of fans would literally take off their shoes and wave them above their heads. After that, Adidas made history and got Run DMC to sign a $1 million endorsement deal. This opened a brand new and widely successful chapter of shoe endorsements. Signing musical artists, especially from hip-hop, made corporations richer beyond their wildest dreams. For example, Reebok became one of the biggest heavyweights in footwear after signing both Jay-Z and 50 Cent. But even though Adidas had started all of this, even though their products were beloved by both athletes and dancers, none of this could save them from being knocked over by one of the biggest forces of change in the entire industry, Blue Ribbon Sports. Or as you might know it today, Nike. Actually, 
I know it as Blue Ribbon Sports. Oh. <laughs> Excuse me. Have you seen my Blue Ribbon Sports Jordans? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad Michael Jordan didn't sign the Blue Ribbon Sports. Adidas and Puma were at the top in Europe, but they might have been too slow to take over the biggest prize, the US. Ever since World War II, the United States had something pretty unique. It was the world's biggest superpower, which didn't just translate into military strength. It also meant cultural power. Soft power. America was a brand that suddenly everybody needed. If you could take America, you could take the world. And that's what Nike did. Here's the extremely abbreviated version of how Nike happened. Phil Knight was a track runner, who later went on to get an MBA in finance from Stanford University in California. Bill Bowerman was his coach. Sometime during the 1960s, Phil Knight wrote an essay that suggested moving footwear manufacturing to East Asia, making it easier to compete with the German giants, Adidas and Puma. Then he and his former coach partnered up and did it for real. By 1965, sales had reached an impressive $20,000. Well. It's 1965 standards, that was impressive. But that's still nothing compared to the competition. Everything changed when Nike launched the very well-advertised Nike Air technology. A lot of people don't know this, but recreational jogging was actually not a common practice up until the 1970s. And when the casual fitness revolution started, Nike was there to corner it. In fact, one of Nike's founders, Bill Bowerman, was one of those that first made jogging popular in the first place. I mean, you can't lose when you're the one making it popular and profiting from it. Nike was a shooting star. By 1967, the company's revenue was $28.7 million. From $20,000 to $28.7 million. Not too shabby. In 1983, it was a staggering $867 million. However, the company was still missing something. In 1984, Nike posted its first quarterly loss ever. The company needed to figure out what that missing ingredient was and they had to figure it out fast. Apparently, that missing ingredient was a rookie athlete by the name Everybody of Michael up. Jordan. It's time to slam now. We got a real jam going down. Welcome to the Space Jam. Space jam. Here's your chance. Do your dance at the Space Jam. All right. All right. After seeing Jordan play for UNC, a variety of brands wanted to get a deal with him. Converse tried to get him, but they were too slow to innovate and they really weren't hungry enough. Spot built, OJ Simpson sponsor tried to get him, but the company was just too small to compete. Jordan himself wanted to wear Adidas, but they weren't willing to pay Jordan what he was potentially worth. And then all of a sudden, Nike decided to go all in on Jordan. Up until that point, the highest paying contract had belonged to James Worthy after signing an eight-year deal for $150,000 per year. But out of nowhere, here comes an insane Nike, offering a rookie Michael Jordan $500,000 a year. And who could say no to that? I could say no to that. No, 
TTFO out of here. No, I'm actually in uh, the middle of talks with the Adidas about designing some Air Max Uncolonials. Uh, Air Max Noahs. Wow. Both of them. All right, this has been a colonial history. <laughs> I'm signing off. I really don't know what to say. That was a lot. Well, you know, I got some connections in the business. Uh, but anyways, the rest is history. Air Jordans became one of the most beloved sneaker lines of all time. Still to this day. With MJ on this side, Nike opened an era of non-stop winning. Today, the Jordan brand alone is worth around $2.8 billion. As shoes got hotter and hotter, the industry fed off their demand for years, and soon they became absolutely too big to fail. In 2003, Nike bought out the former kings of the business, Converse, and in 2006, Adidas made a similar move by taking over Reebok. And they've been competing left and right ever since. And they all left happily ever after. All right, that's a wrap. Guess, guess this episode is done. All right. Cut it. You, oh, know? you, got, you thought we were going to try to analyze a whole nope, thing? No, nope. That's cute. That's cute. That's adorable. That. Roll the credits. Give them, give them the credits. All right. This episode is sponsored by Adidas and Nike. Glad we got all of our credits out of the way. <laughs> all right. But this episode really isn't finished because there's a few. What? There's a few loose ends we gotta tie up. What's particularly amazing about Nike and Adidas is that they are two corporate giants that have somehow convinced us that their brands somehow have street credibility and culture, and furthermore, that their brand belongs to marginalized peoples, especially black people. And to be fair, there is some logic in that. From Jesse Owens to Run DMC, from Michael Jordan to Kevin Hart, in some ways, these two companies have been constantly celebrating or perhaps exploiting black youth culture, as well as catering to or perhaps appropriating the fashion sense of black cultural centers such as Harlem and Chicago. And beyond that, both Nike and Adidas have put themselves at the center of social progress, or at least that's how they market it. Nike has its world-renowned equality campaign, where it pledges millions of dollars to organizations advancing equality in the United States. Outspoken Nike figures such as LeBron James have been at the very center of those campaigns. And Adidas has done very similar things. In 2015, they offered to pay the cost of any school willing to drop offensive Indian mascots. Pharrell made a big splash when he joined Adidas and produced the Human Races NMDs an anti-racist shoe line that has even collaborated with the indigenous MHA nation on a shoe collection. I mean, on paper, it seems like both companies care about lofty principles such as equality, fairness, and justice. But behind the scenes, things can look a lot different. And Nike is more guilty of that than anyone. Just listen to this short list. In 2007, Nike settled a huge discrimination suit for $7.6 million. This settlement came after 400 employees in Chicago took legal action against their managers, who were known to use racial slurs and segregate black employees into lower-paying positions in the stockrooms. Just this summer, 11 top-level executives have been ousted thanks to widespread allegations of harassment and discrimination against female employees, all while the company is aggressively inserting itself into the women's booming athleisure market. 
And this is to say nothing about how Nike senior management prior to these charges was overwhelmingly white men, even though its advertisements seem to scream that it believes in diversity and inclusion. And lastly, while Adidas committed itself to eradicating racist mascots, Nike has apparel deals with the worst of the worst, namely the Washington Redskins and the Cleveland Indians. That's like a, a whole grocery list of racism. Yeah, we're going to have to sort through some of this messiness in a minute. So just stick with us. People who waited in line all night long to get the new Air Jordan basketball shoes flooded into Lafayette Square Mall just after 7 this morning. They literally broke a door off the hinges. Several people were trampled while others crawled over them to get inside. It was a few people that was on the ground. I jumped over them and kept running. You know, it's Michael Jordan. That's what he do. This was one of his, his most known shoes. 11 Concourse exclusive. You see what I'm saying? I ain't been out in 11 years. Shoppers in a hurry to get in line left behind shoes that had been on their feet and some of their clothes. Dozens of Metro police officers responded to malls around the city to help with crowd control. Police raced to Washington Square to help as hundreds of shoppers tried to be the first in line. At Castleton Square Mall, police and mall security helped escort people to their cars after they bought their Air Jordans because they were concerned about safety. It was wild, you know, people was up there acting rowdy, a couple of fights broke out. At one point they were throwing uh, things at each other and at other police officers. I got my stuff. Some of the shoppers tell Six News they welcomed the police presence. I do commend the police officers and the security on the inside because they did do a good job. Officers were called in, obviously, to restore order, and that's exactly what our officers did. The shoes cost about $180 when you factor in the price and everything they had to go through. We asked people if it was really worth it. To make my nieces and nephews happy for Christmas, yes. It's worth getting trampled over just to get them what they need. Based on the smiles we saw, it's obvious they got what they wanted. So it's Christmas 2011, and the Concord 11s just retroed and are about to release all over the country. Having mastered the science of supply and demand, Nike and Jordan built an uncontrollable hype for the shoe. Frantic shoppers in Indiana, Texas, and Virginia pushed and competed to get their hands on this exclusive release. And no one can deny it got violent. However, sometimes the coverage of these incidents can get a little racist. You know, Quanell, the day before Christmas, I'm watching a thousand people in line outside of sporting goods stores trying to get a hundred pairs of $200 Air Jordan throwback sneakers. And as I looked at that line, Quanell, and I know this is going to make you angry, I see African Americans, I see Hispanics, I see a lot of minorities, I also see Caucasians, let's be clear, but I see a lot of minorities waiting to get these $200 sneakers and trampling each other once those doors open. I see small children being trampled. Now listen, I don't want to lay this all at the feet of the African-American or Hispanic community, but what lessons are being taught in the homes that people are willing to trample each other for a $200 pair of throwback sneakers? And this isn't just about racist commentary. This is about a complete revision of the facts. One of the YouTube videos we just sampled for this show was entitled, Three People Killed Over Air Jordans, in all caps. That simply did not happen in this news cycle. It just didn't. What did happen is this. 
social media and blogs began circulating the story of Tyreek Amir Jacobs, an 18-year-old murdered for his coveted shoes. The only problem? That didn't happen either. According to the Baltimore Sun, calls to police revealed that there had been no such killing. As a matter of fact, later on it was revealed that the photo of Tyreek circulating the internet was actually a stock photo of a black high school student in London who knew nothing about what was going on until his face went viral. I mean, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. We could go on with more examples and guess what we're gonna. As we did some research for this episode, we came across a documentary on sneaker culture called Sneakerheads, which claimed- Sneakerheads with the Z. You're right, Sneakerheads, which claimed 1,200 people are killed each year over sneakers. Wow. Did you know that, David? Yes, because I'm actually one of the murderers. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> you uh, didn't know <laughs> what, what kind of numbers are you putting up every year the 1200 <laughs> <laughs> but get this later on the director of the film David Friendly said quote we reported that number only as an estimate but whether it was one death or 1000 he added it's enough that manufacturers should take the maximum precautions to protect lives wow <laughs> I love that to give you a sense of how insane that claim really is, just consider this. In 2012, 14,827 people were murdered. According to the FBI's crime report in the same year, 1,847 of those murders were designated as felony related. That is, they occurred during the commission of crimes such as rape, robbery, or burglary. Basically, in order for that figure to be correct, over 65% of all murders occurring during the commission of another crime would not only be specifically the crime of armed robbery, but even more specifically, the theft of shoes. It's just an insane claim to make. And honestly, there's nothing new about this strange way of reporting shoe-related news. Let's take it back to May of 1989. It's Michael Jordan's fifth season with the Chicago Bulls, and his airness, wink wink, was working his way to the NBA Finals. 15-year-old Michael Eugene Thomas and 17-year-old James David Martin entered some woods near a high school in Maryland. James David Martin then proceeded to strangle the young Thomas and removed his Jordans. Sports Illustrated put the story on the front page with the infamous illustration of a black man stealing shoes at gunpoint with the provocative title, Your Sneakers? or your life. Needless to say, the country was furious and immediately looked at Michael Jordan, Nike, and street culture asking, how could you let this happen? It was one of those cases that stuck around for decades. But yet again, the full story never made its rounds. James Martin was actually mentally ill and a serial killer. The shoes he stole didn't even fit him. And it was later revealed that he didn't just steal the shoes, he also sexually assaulted the younger Michael Thomas. One of the most high-profile sneaker murders of all time wasn't even about sneakers at all. Now, part of this is clearly about blaming poverty on poor people's decisions instead of institutional inequality. And we could talk about that all day long. But at the same time, none of this is to say that violence over sneakers doesn't happen. We're talking about sneakers that resell in hundreds, sometimes even thousands of dollars. Take the 2012 incident in Houston when Joshua Woods, 22 at the time, was followed from Willowbrook Mall after buying three $200 pairs of Air Jordans. Three armed assailants approached his car, demanded his sneakers, and then fatally shot Woods. He was the father of a son who is now 12 years old. 
and it is without a doubt messed up that anyone has died getting their shoes robbed. But to understand all of this, to get a better grip on what this current chapter of sneaker history is about, we gotta explore an idea that is central to the current wave. And that idea is, drumroll please, hype. Love how you delivered that. I love it. <laughs> now, just how crazy does the hype really get? Just take a listen to this clip from a documentary about sneakerheads called Just For Kicks, where a man who owns hundreds of shoes talks to his girlfriend about his passion. Here's what happens. I just think that he needs to stop collecting. I think that there's just, there comes a time where you need to start focusing on more important things than sneakers and footwear and fashion and style. Whatever. Like what? I don't know, career maybe? Business? Work? The future. Tommy lives in the past, as you can see, with all his 80s and early 90s no, no, runners. No, 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 and there's no 80s in my house. I don't know. I'm just upset sometimes that he doesn't want to, you know, move on or grow up, you know. Because you're not making anything good now. No, I'm not talking about sneakers. I'm talking about life. Oh, whatever. See, but it always comes back to sneakers. I mean, I love, I love his sneakers. I love sneakers. I've always loved sneakers, but he's obsessed. It's just like, it doesn't have to be like that. Whenever your girlfriend has to stage an intervention in the middle of a documentary, I think you, you know you've crossed the line. But anyways, here to walk us through the concept is none other than Colin Beeson, a local sneakerhead and socialite. So, so what is hype in your own in your own view? Like, what what is hype? Because you know people talk about it all the time, but it's not something you know where people say like hype and then put like an annotation. This is what I mean by hype. Right. Like, what like what is hype? Right, and I've seen it since the beginning. Honestly, hype is a drug. It is a real deal drug. I think hype. I blame it on social media for sure. Instagram, Twitter, you name that. The consistency of seeing others trying to outshine each other and then wanting to fit in. That's what hype is. Hype is literally a drug, like, and I, I've, I've delved into it. There were times, like, every weekend I needed to be out there and get some kicks. But then you just had to break down and realize the sneakers ain't going nowhere, you know, or, or anything. The brands ain't going nowhere. They're always going to be there, but I mean, it's, it's, it's literally a drug. Like, you, you can't help it. I mean, even when I go to L.A. or where I've been, I see little kids fresher than me. And I'm like, <laughs> they got on, like, $1,000 fits or so, but it's all hype. Like, they, they, gonna, they don't know what, you know, they don't know the history of the brand. They don't know why they got all that on. They just want to look cool for aesthetic purposes or Instagram or whatever. It's, it's literally all a drug, it's, they, and they can't get away from it. That's what hype is to me. And so, like, the, the thing with the hype is, like, do they necessarily care about the history of it, or is it is it all just about hype, like what they've seen, or, or what's your view? I mean, I think it's like 10% they like it, 90% they just got to have it. Interesting. Yeah, that's how I see it. Like, they don't, they don't know, like I said. I can break down. A, I mean, you can break down the history of a lot of brands, and they're just like, "Oh, oh, oh!" You can ask the average hype beast; he probably don't know nothing. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's sad, but I mean, hey, if you like it, you like it. I guess I don't know. I think you should just have a better understanding of what you're putting on. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day. Okay, so now that we have a basic understanding of what hype is, it's time to talk about how that hype is manufactured, or more importantly, where it's manufactured. And it's not manufactured where the shoes are manufactured. It's manufactured in your heart. <laughs> or should I say in your soul? <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's gonna say. 
Wow. Okay, we're back to the episode now. <laughs> but to do that, first we gotta talk about one of the most interesting historical topics of all time. And that would be containerization. Okay, but we just gotta talk about it. And I promise afterwards we're gonna make all the dots connect, okay? Mm, I guess I can live with that. Alright, wonderful. So, containerization is a system of intermodal freight transport using intermodal containers, also called shipping containers. Okay, let me put it this way. Have you seen those huge boats with thousands of metal containers stacked on top of each other? If anyone lives in a coastal city, you'll see these ports with a seemingly endless number of metal containers stacked on top of each other. And it can be just very simply transferred from one form of transportation to another. That's what intermodal means. The history of containerization actually explains a lot about how the world looks and works today. See, back in the day, in the 1800s to be exact, commercial ships would be loaded with all kinds of cargo, all kind of meshed together, kind of haphazardly shaped and strewn about. Everything was all individually packaged, and ports needed a lot of labor to get all of that moved and organized and stored. By modern standards, it was a very slow, very inefficient, very expensive, very insecure way of doing things. So if you were a manufacturer, whether you were making toys or flour or shoes, oh, I see where this is going, then it would behoove you, it would be in your best interests to keep that manufacturing local especially when you consider other factors such as the importance of a company being able to communicate quickly which back then really was not an option so for example during the 1800s european countries imported a lot of raw cotton from the united states because the south had the better climate for this cash crop and on top of that you know the u.s had millions of slaves However, once they got that cotton, they imported it to England and manufactured it into textiles on their own home territories. It's just what made sense for them. However, in 1917, this started to change when a man named Benjamin Franklin Fitch comes up with a better way of transporting goods, an idea we call today containerization. Fast forward to the Wall Street crash of 1929. Many countries were left without any means to transport cargo, and everyone was scratching their heads saying, man, I wish someone knew a cheaper, faster, more efficient, more secure way of shipping things. Which is when a man named Benjamin Franklin Fitch comes along and basically says, guys, I've been trying to tell you about this containerization since 1917, but now he finally had the opportunity for it to be popularized. So in 1915, 55, the modern shipping container was developed and during that same year the world's first container vessel that huge boat with you know those millions of boxes stacked on top of it was finally built maybe not millions but it's a lot probably billions <laughs> maybe unions at ports all over the world struggled against this development as it drastically cut down jobs but it was too late a new era started everyone said well shipping is now so cheap and fast we might as well move production to wherever it'll be cheapest. Hint, hint. <clears throat> we might as well just move it to a country where minimum wage is a small fraction of what it is in the US. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Nike was founded on the idea of moving their operations to East Asia. Remember earlier we mentioned that during the 1960s, Phil Knight wrote an essay that suggested moving footwear manufacturing to East Asia just to make it 
easier to compete with the German giants, Adidas and Puma. Adidas soon followed Nike on that move. In 1989, a struggling Adidas was bought by businessman Bernard Tapie for $1.6 billion. Hoping to get Adidas back on track and trying to match the cheap manufacturing models of Nike, Tapie decided to move production offshore to East Asia. So all of a sudden, East Asia was where the two biggest shoe companies were conducting almost all of their manufacturing. And ever since, they've been moving massive quantities of shoes across the ocean. Just listen to this one story, narrated by a YouTuber named Laura Verheg, about what happened when just one boat had problems at sea. In 1990, over 4 billion tons of cargo was moved by container ships worldwide. This figure is now closer to 7 billion tons. The ships that carry this cargo are huge, some longer than the height of the Empire State Building. Most cargo is packed into standardized shipping containers that measure 20 feet long by 8 feet wide. There are 5 to 6 million of these containers in transit over the seas at any given moment. Not all of these make it to their destination. This is the story of four that were lost. In the spring of 1990, a container ship called the Hansa Carrier left a South Korean port bound for the U.S. On May 27th, in the Central Pacific, the Hansa Carrier was overtaken by a huge storm. A large wave knocked four containers overboard. These four containers broke open in the sea, releasing 60,000 Nike tennis shoes that were held within. 61,000 Nike shoes. That's 61,000 in just four containers in one shipment. You know, I hate to say it, but containerization really did change everything. Okay, so with containerization, companies like Nike and Adidas could move their operations wherever they wanted and save millions on paying wages to workers. But there's a catch, and it's an ugly one. A contractor making clothes for sportswear giant Nike has been caught using forced labour in Malaysia. An undercover investigation by Seven News discovered factory workers being paid a pittance and forced to live in squalor while Nike stars earn a fortune. This is what Nike boasts to the world. My bed is better than your bed. But there are two sides to Nike. The public face, the hidden misery. Tonight, the evidence. It's no great secret that designer sportswear is made in remote factories by poorly paid workers. But what's going on here in Malaysia is something altogether more sinister. It's human trafficking on a massive scale. Here's how it works. Recruiters in poverty-stricken countries offer desperate men and women guaranteed work in Malaysia. But there's a catch, an upfront fee, the equivalent of a year's wages. Now they're in debt. On arrival, their passports are confiscated. Now they're trapped. Then, like these Vietnamese workers we met at a secret location, they must sign three-year contracts in a language they can't read. It's a virtual prison. To leave, they must buy out their debt and buy back their passports. But they're paid so little, escape is impossible. What they say in here is all they've been trapped and they've been lied to. An hour's drive from Kuala Lumpur is Hitech's apparel, reputedly the largest t-shirt manufacturer in Asia. It's a Nike contractor. Cameras are banned here, but posing as a fashion buyer, I gain access to the factory. Nike signs are everywhere. We saw them on every floor. Go, go, go. We then sought out the living quarters of the foreign workers. 
A group of Bangladeshis pleaded with us to come in. We're led down a filthy corridor, past people sleeping, people eating. They're crammed like cattle, 26 men per room. A staggering 350 Bangladeshi workers live in this one tin shed. Why is it no good? Because you see so many people, no enough room, uh, so many people living here. There are similar barns for the workers from Burma and Vietnam, and a separate barn for the women. But conditions are even worse outside. So this is where you bathe? This is, this is the shower? This single trough is where hundreds of men bathe. 50%, Next to the trough, the toilets. Next to the toilets is where they prepare their food. For these men, there is no escape. That is one of the most squalid, heartbreaking sights imaginable. There's hundreds of men all living on top of each other. There's a searing heat, uh, an overpowering stench. It makes you feel really angry what's going on here and also just overwhelmingly sad. When you really think about it, the entire business model behind what Nike and Adidas did was this. Find severely impoverished, often formerly colonized nations and ask them to make products for very low wages. That's extremely exploitative. Throughout the 1990s, Nike was criticized for selling goods produced in sweatshops. And at first, they denied these allegations. However, in 2001, Nike director Todd McKean stated in an interview that the initial attitude was, hey, we don't own the factories, we don't control what goes on there. And McKean admitted that this was a very irresponsible way of running a business. So as the pressure piled up over the years, in 1998, Phil Knight pledged to turn this around. And in 2002, Nike began auditing factories, making sure that they were safe places to work. And in China and South Korea, where most of the shoes were produced, working conditions and pay did get better. For a while, it looked like some sort of fix had happened. Except... This was all a double-edged sword. As wages and working conditions are improving in nations such as China and South Korea, Nike and Adidas have recently moved production to even lower-wage nations such as Vietnam and Indonesia. Indonesia, as in a country where factory workers make 76 times less per hour than workers in the United States. And so today, issues are arising yet again. At a Nike contract factory in Hansei, Vietnam, workers suffered wage theft, verbal abuse, and labored for hours in temperatures well over the legal limit of 90 degrees, to the point that they would collapse at their sewing machines. And of course, workers are still being paid far less than they would in the United States, since these are impoverished, formerly colonized nations. And to think that in these same factories where people are paid so poorly, each pair of shoe being made could be worth up to $200 or more. At this point, you might be thinking, well, Fine then, I'm just gonna buy my shoes from a company that produces its goods domestically. <sighs> Almost no brand does this anymore. In fact, New Balance is the last big company still manufacturing shoes in the States. New Balance, as in the official shoe of white people after their executives expressed their support of Donald Trump. It's crazy to think about, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. In 2015, a notorious sneaker reseller who goes by Corgi Shoe explained how Nike has maximized their profits on hyped up shoes. In his own words, by significantly increasing production numbers and raising MSRP, or the manufacturer's suggested retail price across the board, it's the magic formula to make the shareholders smile. 
For example, a shoe that would sell for 100 is now bumped up to 125. Many stores will sell at MSRP. The rest will quickly be discounted and sold in the company stores at a 25% discount, which happens to be a more accurate MSRP based on the real production costs. We've reached an era where new releases come out every single week. The protection of these shoes is crazy high, but so are the prices. What happens to all that surplus money? The millions that they didn't spend paying workers acceptable wages? I think I know what they do with it. Oh yeah? Go, go, go ahead, take a guess. They keep it. Yep. Ding, 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 Correct. So, throughout this episode, we've covered a lot of shoe history. And at first glance, it may seem like the shoe industry is full of contradictions. Contradiction number one. Two members of the Nazi party created a brand that would later become Adidas and Puma. Companies that later on went to chase a diverse street culture by signing the likes of Rihanna, Big Sean, Jay-Z, Vic Mensa, and Meek Mill. Contradiction number two, companies like Nike and Adidas have marketed themselves as being on the front lines of social justice issues when in reality, with the advent of containerization, both companies are on the front lines of exploiting low wages from formerly colonized nations such as Vietnam and Indonesia. And contradiction number three. Although they are dedicated to following and adapting street culture and fashion and are quick to market themselves in this way, that doesn't mean the hype lives up to the expectation. Ooh. So we talked earlier about how hype could be a dangerous thing. And although shoe-related violence is drastically exaggerated by racist political pundits, that doesn't make it any less serious. It's worth recalling that in 2003, Nike bought Converse, the company that churns out low-stakes $50 shoes for its majority white consumers, while at the same time, Nike and Jordan brand go out of their way to limit supplies when they really don't need to be charging $200 a pair. That's, that's just a fact. The same company has control over both those franchises. However, when one looks at the history altogether, one thing becomes clear. These aren't contradictions at all. And to prove it, let's quickly go back to the beginning. So picture this. It's the 1936 Berlin Olympics, and Adolf Hitler is trying to prove to his nation and to the world that the Aryan race is supreme. Now what he didn't account for was Jesse Owens. As we've discussed, Jesse Owens steals the show, winning four gold medals and breaking nine Olympic records. I mean, there's a reason that this name has stuck around our households for all these years. But before he did any of that, a German man named Adolf Adi Dossler approaches him asking him to wear his track shoes at the Olympics. And for whatever reason, Jesse Owen agrees to it. After the historic games, the company's sales exploded, eventually becoming what we know today as Adidas and Puma. But it's also worth noting here that as an amateur athlete, Owens was never paid for this. And later on, after trying to get an endorsement deal, Jesse Owens lost his amateur status, effectively ending his sports career for good. For years, he struggled financially and even declared bankruptcy during the 1960s. So while Dossler had taken the world by storm, thanks to the legendary greatness of Jesse Owens, Owens himself never got a single share of the profits. At the end of the day, the bottom line for these companies is profit, not culture. So of course Nike and Adidas contradict themselves at every turn. Their approach to business is to do things as they always have while marketing themselves as if everything is new. So to be clear, we're not saying that you should burn your retro Jordans or tear up your superstars, because I'm, I'm not. 
to I'm gonna say that right now. Please. <laughs> Never ask you to do something I wouldn't do myself. <laughs> what we are saying is that our shoes, more so than anything else we wear, do make a statement far beyond the world of fashion. Now, according to the companies themselves, every pair of shoe pays homage to a different era of beats, b-boys, and basketball, all in the name of equality and inclusivity. However, there are other histories underneath this. A history of exploitation overseas, racism and sexism in the workplace, overhyping and overpricing their brand, sometimes with violent consequences, and simply not practicing what they boast to preach. So the next time you see someone wearing some crazy hype shoes, just remember that at the end of the day, the swoosh and the three stripes are only undefeated for now. So, to anyone out there trying to replace or expand the options we currently have, just remember, impossible is nothing, so just do it. What a close. This episode was produced by David Hamilton. And Noah Ramage. Danielle Moore is the unspoken asset of this podcast. She does a lot of different stuff for both the blog and podcast. So thank you, Danielle. Christian Gould is our graphic designer. Monica Sekakwaptua is our social media director. Jasmine Joseph is our CFO. Last but not least, stay tuned for more Uncolonial History episodes. And we'll see you guys soon. running oh i got some i got some jokes for you by the way <laughs> oh, okay so uh i bought shoes from a drug dealer okay. i don't know what he laced them with but i've been chipping all day <laughs> sipping my virgin mimosa aka just orange juice <clears throat> you're fired <laughs> <laughs> That's gotta make the ending though. <laughs> if you gotta start that somehow. <laughs>